Hello, everybody. Welcome to this episode of the Food Peddlers Podcast. And today I have a very exciting guest for you, um, Sonia Becker. She is a third-generation farmer in Thermopolis, Wyoming, where she runs a permaculture farm that includes just about everything you need to eat all in one place. She is now a dairy, beef, pork, lamb, poultry, eggs, produce, I got to take a breath there, and grass farmer, all in one. And her farm provides food for the Thermopolis community and beyond. Sonia has a passion for diversity in farming where many different forms of life come together to make spectacular food for people. And we're very excited to have her on the show today. So thank you so much for taking the time out of your busy schedule to, to talk with us today, Sonia. Well, thank you very much, Jack. Zach. <laughs> That's actually, that's what my sister called me when I was like five years old. She called me that. And, uh, couldn't get, get Zach out. God, Jack. Well, you know, it's so funny to know you for so long. And then when, when you put me on the spot, that's what comes out of my mouth. Hey, hey, that's cool, man. I go by Jack, Zach, Zach Attack, Treebeard, whatever you want. So Just resorting back to your sister's time frame, you know. Yeah, you know, you just brought back some good memories for me. So that's okay. Well, good, good. Glad to help. <laughs> So, so yeah, I've known you for, gosh, what, three, four years now, and uh, it's funny, when I first started Farm Table West, you kind of, I, I talked to you on the phone for, I don't know, God knows how many times, but about, like, you know, the different food regulations I need to know about, and just about every question I had about um, different kinds of farming before I actually got involved in the whole thing, uh, you were my go-to, you were my Google uh, back then. <laughs> so I, I'm so glad we could do this podcast. Cause I know like there's just infinite amount of things we could talk about, but, um, I was kind of hoping to focus a little bit on your family history a little bit and, uh, um, and your mission for providing better than organic food. And I know that's, that's a loaded topic, but I'm really excited to to ask you about that one because I know you have really good thoughts on it and I totally agree with them. So, but, uh, um, to start off, I was thinking, um, your farm has been in your family for three generations, right? Or is it more than that? Well, this farm right here where I'm living is the third generation. I'm on the third generation, but, um, my great-grandparents homesteaded one drainage over on Cottonwood Creek, so not very far from here. And they did they did uh, a little bit of farming as well. But this particular piece of land my grandparents bought in 1957, and uh, so they, they were the ones who originally uh, bought it from the original family that homesteaded it, so it hasn't been in too many hands. And then in, uh, in 72, my dad came back to the farm to help my grandparents out, uh, my grandfather had had purchased the original land, and then he had added two more properties that were adjoining it together, and so we had about 700 acres, a little over 700 acres together. And as he got older, he started thinking, well, this is getting kind of rough to manage all by myself, and he offered to see if any of his four sons would come back and help him out. And my dad was in a position at that point where he could come back to the farm and, and take over and, and help my grandfather out. And so we moved back from Lander over here and went to went to farming. 
and uh, then I didn't come back until I was here through high school. And the day after high school, I didn't want to have anything to do with farming, so I uh, I jumped ship and and took off to go find other adventures. And when I had my own children, I my husband and I started to think, well, where are we going to raise our family? And of course, back on the farm. So we moved back here in uh, in December of '97, uh, and uh, came back to the farm. And the first thing my dad told me was, "You can't make a living farming on Owl Creek." And the big reason for that is that uh, Owl Creek has a really beautiful dam called Anchor Dam up the creek from us another 30 miles, and the Corps of Engineers came in and built this great big huge dam for irrigation, but it doesn't hold water, and so it, uh, if you fill it too full, the bottom falls out of it, and all the water drains out, and the native residents at the time and the people around told them that it, it wasn't good stable soil, but the Corps knew better, and so they built this lovely dam, and uh, it, it uh, only holds about a quarter of what it should. So during the, the season when you should be getting lots of, of irrigation water, ours runs out many years. And that, uh, so that makes it really difficult to farm here. And so we got a business in town and did that for a long time. And then my uh, husband and I split up and I started trying to figure out how I could farm here. Um, I had already bought a milk cow and I got me some chickens and, and it just was, was one of those things that uh, when you live on a farm you just want to farm I guess. I don't know. I never thought I'd come back to start farming but it just started to grow on me again. Yeah, yeah. Well, it, when you're young like that I can imagine you kind of want to go out and you know experience the world before you're, uh, before you're you know, attached to a farm for a long time because once you start farming you're kind of you know, attached to it for, you know, indefinite amount of time, right? Yeah, it's definitely a commitment, and it's, uh, it's got, it's, it's become so intricate that it, it's kind of, uh, um, it's hard to, to just train somebody else up on it and walk away, so I have to be, if I do want to get away from here, I do have a, a gentleman named Carl Anderson who helps me out on the farm, um, and he, he's, He's been with me long enough now that, that he knows how to how to do most things, and so I just get everything towed down to where I've not got too much uh, livestock or too many things that have to be tended to on a daily basis, and I can run off with every once in a while for a little bit. But uh, yeah, farming definitely uh, is a is a twenty four seven commitment. Yeah, amen, man, amen. And and Carl is uh, he's from a farm in Wisconsin, right? So he's got lots of experience with dairy farming. Is that right? Yeah, so I had gotten remarried, and I was looking for another milk cow, and I married a gentleman from Wisconsin, and he, uh, his mother had heard that the neighbor was going to sell, have an auction, and sell off his dairy cows, and she knew I wanted another milk cow. There weren't very many jerseys here at that time, and, uh, and so he went back to Wisconsin to this auction, and um, the the original intent had been to get me another milk cow and then to buy a few heifers to bring that time. This was back in 2010. And, uh, and so 
he went back to Wisconsin and went to the uh, auction. And instead of the cows coming through, well, the heifers were coming, the little young heifers were coming through really expensive. And he was like, oh, we're not going to be able to buy very many of these. And so when the milk cows came through, and these were already lactating, and, and uh, they started to come through, and they were coming through really cheap. And so he started throwing his arm up in the air, and I don't know, I guess it just, you know, got waving in the wind. And he ended up buying 10 of those milk cows. And, uh, and then once he got done with those, the two-year-old unbred heifers started coming through as well at the same price. And those were the ones we didn't think we'd be able to afford. And uh, I wasn't there, of course, so <laughs> I couldn't tell him stop. <laughs> he ended up buying 11 of those. Um, and, and so we, we pretty well bought half a Carl's milk cow herd. Um, but we had gotten a loan from the bank to, to buy a few extras and bring them back. But since the price was, was what it was, we were actually able to buy a lot more of them than uh, we had originally intended. So John stayed there at Carl's farm because we had to get the, all the health papers done before we could bring them back and ship them into Wyoming. And so he stayed there on, on Carl's farm. Uh, milking the cows through his system and then he went around to all the neighboring farms and bought up 14 little bull calves to put on these milk cows because he knew I wasn't going to milk 10 milk cows. Mm -hmm. <laughs> I had no desire to milk that many cows a day. So he bought all these little bull calves to put, them, put on there and got them all paired up while he was there and then he loaded up the 21 cows, the 14 little calves and 20 feeder pigs and put them all on a semi and shipped them home to me. <laughs> Needless to say, I wasn't a very happy camper and neither were they when they showed up. Um, John stayed gone for another, for another week and uh, those cows got off that semi. We had to hand carry all those 20 squealing piglets, the driver and I, back to the pen I had for them. And then the, uh, the, um, the milk cows and the calves had been together for, for 24 hours, so the cows were in pain. And the calves had never been with their moms before other than the short time they were there at the farm. And the cows had never raised calves before. So everybody was a bit confused, and they were all in a new place. And uh, we got them off the, off the truck and put them in the crowd together, and the calves wouldn't suckle up with the cows, and the cows wouldn't let the calves suck, and I was trying to get them in the milk parlor to milk them, and they'd never seen my parlor before, and they didn't see me before, and they thought neither one of those were a good plan, so they didn't want to get milked, and then the milk machine wouldn't run, because <laughs> <laughs> it, it wouldn't hold its vacuum, and I just had all kinds of fun, so by 10 o'clock that night, I gave up, and I went to bed, and uh, I came back out in the morning refreshed and started over again and finally got the milking machine working, got the cows milked and got the calves suckled up and just started getting things working. And, and by the time my, my husband came back, he's like, well, I don't know what your problem was. It seems to all be working fine to me. <laughs> but it, was, it was a trying week, but, uh, I can but it all worked out. Yeah, you, 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 you have an interesting definition of fun, man. <laughs> uh, I couldn't imagine that, but at least yeah. you got Carl too. You know, you got the yeah, bonus. Yeah, so plan. we ended up. Yeah, we ended up in the long run. I ended up with Carl. So my my uh, uh, husband passed away in a hunting accident in uh, in in October of 2010, 
after we got the milk cows in March. And Carl had been talking to us. We'd been talking to him over the course of the time that, that from the time we bought the cows until then. And he'd been talking about coming out and seeing Wyoming. He hadn't been out here, and he was retired now, but he kept helping all the neighbors and the farmers there do their cropping and different things. And so at the end of... Uh, at the end of the year, after John passed away, I went out in November to the memorial service, and Carl came up to me, and he said he was the pushiest he's ever been in his life, because he's really not a very outgoing, pushy kind of person. And <laughs> he came up to me, and he said, do you still need help out there? I, I can come out and help you. I'll help you for as long as you need me, and, and if you don't need me there anymore, I'll, I'll go. And uh, that's been almost nine years ago. So Awesome. Yeah, he... Uh, He's he's been he's uh, he's been fantastic. He I don't pay him. He just loves his retirement and gets to farm without the responsibility. Yeah, that's also a really interesting definition of retirement too. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, well, you, you know, if you if you sit down in a chair, you you don't last too long. So you got to stay busy with something, and this is something he loves to do. So. Oh, amen to that, man. Amen to that. Um, I wanted to touch on your dad as well, because your dad, Keith, um, who I love, he's, he's a real character. Um, he he was farming on, he, he's the one who expanded your guys' acreage now, right? And then he was really passionate about grass-fed um, at the time. Is that correct? Well, actually, not so much. Okay. My dad, my dad did a lot of the, just the conventional conventional farming and, and, and raising of livestock. He didn't do too much else. Okay. Um, he had a cow-calf operation. He brought, he had his, his black baldy cows, um, which he bred to, to Simmental, and then we'd feed out the calves, feed them out grain. We used to raise enough grain to, on some years to, to feed out um, the calves, so we'd harvest the grain, and, and or we'd buy in grain, and and so he did. He did mostly a conventional operation. We had never been big on putting a lot of chemical on the farm. We he brought in um, a little bit of mineral occasionally, but we weren't real big on spraying. You know, they just my mom always grew an organic garden, and they were very conscientious. And so was my grandfather about what we did to the soil and what we did on the land. So that was his big part. And then what my dad had determined is that. Trying to raise livestock on this place in the summertime was nearly impossible because the the conventional way of grazing was you open the gate, you throw them all out, and they're there until you bring them back in in the fall. And they tend to to cause a lot of problems with the way they graze. Um, a cow will eat the same piece of grass over and over again, and leave the weeds if they have the choice and so my dad realized that this wasn't working and so he took um stopped grazing in the in the summertime mm. he would allow someone to come in and just graze during the winter months and then they could feed their hay and we put up hay and dad would feed that hay to the livestock here during the the winter but he wouldn't allow people to graze it during the summer months. And that was what changed things a lot for this farm, was, was getting away from that heavy, intensive grazing um, that can be so destructive. Okay. And you 
and, and correct me if I'm wrong, but I, I thought I remembered that um, you're kind of the one that introduced the, the rotational grazing stuff that you do now, right? And, and he was really yeah. skeptical about that at first, and now... Yeah, he was he was pretty skeptical to start out with the first the first because I did it I started with the with the milk cows right so that summer you know I I fed hay from March we fed hay from March until um, we got the cows out on the on the pasture um, and just sort of did it the normal way and then as uh, as the year progressed John and I did start looking into other ways of of doing things and we started researching and started doing stuff so that next year once john had passed away um the research that i've been doing i've been going to to conferences and trying to learn as much as i could seeing how i was now a dairy farmer um and the the rotational or management intensive grazing or mid grazing they've got a whole bunch of terms for basically the same thing now um the the process of doing that, uh, where we put up a fence, and then you put up um, a fence on each side of the cows. Every day you move them forward, and then you back fence so they can't go back and eat that grass that they like so much the second time. And it also encourages them to eat all of the other weeds and everything. Weeds actually have a lot of nutritional value in them. Um, it's amazing if you start analyzing what the nutrition and weeds are they're really actually pretty good and if you don't have too much of any one thing you don't end up with health effects of them eating too much of something that's that can be toxic in a large quantity hmm. uh, and so yeah my dad my dad the first time i was out there grazing everything and we had it all stripped off and and moving along and he's looking at things going i don't know about this <laughs> i don't know if this is gonna work and, uh, and we managed to get the cows through and have enough hay to put up for that year. And the next year came along, and he's looking at that same, you know, area where I grazed, and he's saying, well, that's coming back better than I thought it would. I didn't think it would do that much. Um, the third year, we had um, a little strip that grew a lot of alfalfa, mm. and that third year, he said, you know, I'll bet we could put some seed up on that. <laughs> and we did. So... Um, we have uh, Ranger alfalfa here, and it's uh, uh, old, an old variety. And so we, we've grown it here for forever, and it doesn't produce the way the new varieties do, and, but it stays, and you don't have to reseed it very often, and it keeps coming back year after year, and so you don't have the inputs that you would have if you had to go buy seed every year and replant things and till it all up and do that so we uh, we harvested the seed that's that's already um, developed its own growth to our environment and our soil, and so it's it's uh, a lot better to to keep using your own seed than it is to to buy in seed from somewhere else that you know it could have been grown in Missouri, you know, which is not like Wyoming. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so yeah, so Dad wasn't too. Uh, wasn't too sure about the whole thing, but he's uh, he's definitely all on board now. He saw how how it rejuvenates the soil and it rejuvenates the crops and and what a um, an increase in production we've had since we started doing rotational grazing. Right, and convincing your dad of that is quite an accomplishment because he has no shortage of opinions. So. <laughs> <laughs> 
No, he doesn't. You know him well. Yeah. But. So that's that's really cool. Yeah. Um, so did uh, so did you start the farm with the intention when you started doing the the farming on that land? Did you start it with the intention of diversity and permaculture? Or did that kind of you know we we talked about the you getting ten dairy cows just kind of thrown at you? Um, did it kind of just happen by accident or was it intentional? Yes and no. So it started out as as unintentional. You know, just all of a sudden we had a herd of dairy cows, and and we had we had gotten some bum lambs from from uh, a neighbor, and and had raised those up before John passed away. So we had some sheep, um, and I had you know a few chickens, and and uh, at that point we had bought a couple of pigs for the kids to have some some 4-H pigs. So we, we we sort of just added a bunch of things in, but it wasn't wasn't a conscious we're going to work these animals all together. It was more of an opportunity kind of thing. Oh, somebody had some pigs, so we grabbed some pigs. Somebody had some bum lambs, so we grabbed some bum lambs. Little things to maybe make a little money off of. Um, but it was it was after John passed away that I really started to look into the permaculture. And I'd been to enough conferences and things that I'd heard, you know, heard more about it. And so I went to an actual permaculture class down in Colorado. Um, it was a two-week intensive training. So I, I went down and went to that. And that got me really thinking about the ways I can integrate all the things that, that were, we already had. The pigs had come and gone, but um, I did add pig, pigs back into the mix. Um, and I started adding broilers instead of just the laying hens, and we were running the, the broilers after the, the cows so that they can help break up the manure and keep, keep the flies down and things like that. So I started to look at the ways that integrating all these animals together can help your system. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and so, yeah, it was sort of something that, that uh, just sort of built on itself, but... When I started farming, I spent a lot of time doing research. I bought books and I read books, and and just my dad, like I said, had been had been a, a one kind of stock person. He just had the cows, and we didn't have chickens or pigs or anything growing up. My grandfather loved his sheep, but my dad, you know, called them field maggots, and so <laughs> he was. He was thing is becoming like a lot more popular too. the the whole um, permaculture concept is becoming a lot more popular and people are doing it in all sorts of different ways um, and I, I'm not real familiar on the actual science about it and I, I don't know it, we don't have to get super deep into this today but I was just curious like what what in general what's the benefit of you know having 
chickens on your farm and produce or you know the, the the general combination of those different parts coming together to be greater as a whole versus uh you know individual um pockets of a farm you know um right what exactly what's the general benefit of that well permaculture itself is is a philosophy it's permanent agriculture so you're trying to develop systems that are self-sustaining and and not something that you're having to, to rejuvenate all the time. Um, the, the mixing of the livestock isn't necessarily permaculture, but it can be depending on, on what your goals are and how you're, how you're doing things. But the, the idea of permaculture is to, to look at your place and your specific environment and connect all the dots. Where does the wind blow? Which direction does the sun come up? Where can you place things so that they're as most convenient to an operation as possible? You don't want to put your garden, um, you know, way at the other end of the property where you've got to go all the way over there to do your gardening. If it's something that you wander through every day to, to get to something else that you have to do, um, then you're going to interact with it much better than if you have to go over there to deal with it. So you put your garden close to your house, and then you put your orchard out from that because it's something you'll only do on occasion. You won't have to be there every day tending it. And then your fields would be further out from that. Um, so that's the kind of philosophy that permaculture wants you to take into consideration and ways to... Um, to utilize your water better, to utilize, you know, the slopes that you have and how you can cause more uh, more growth in the space that you have by intermixing um, the, the, just the ecology that's there. Adding the livestock in and doing it in a diversified way is more back to the old traditional farming methods. You know, everybody had a couple sheep and a couple pigs and a couple cows and a couple horses, and, you know, that was their livelihood. That's, that's what fed them for the year. And so it wasn't so much of a thought that these things help each other, but that we need these things. And gradually we've learned that you can mix these systems together in ways that do help, but you also have to be careful. Because a lot of people don't think about the fact that, that some of these things got separated because you do have diseases in one species that can be transferred to the other species. And so you, you need to at least be cognizant of those things and not just assume that you can mix them all together and have no problems. Sure. A lot of uh, TB can be transferred or, um, you know, the, the uh, avian flu different things between pigs and chickens and, and chickens and cows, you know, my cows the chickens carry a type of TB that is not transferable to cows or humans, but it, it makes that, that immune response in a cow come back saying TB. So hmm. the state vet has to come out and he has to do blood samples and they have to have them all checked and, and everything to make sure that that hasn't, you know, that it isn't a true TB, which we really don't have much TB these days. Um, it's pretty well been eradicated. But, you know, putting cows in the city is where we ended up getting the TB in the first place. They weren't living in sanitary conditions, and so you ended up with tuberculosis being 
in the cows because they were being fed distiller's grain and kept in, in horrible conditions. And so you've got to pay attention to, to those kinds of things. You also have to pay attention to um, bringing new livestock in or new things into your farm. Where I run the farm that I do with the diversification, I have to be really, really careful about bringing new things into my farm because I will end up with diseases on my farm that come from somebody else's stock. Or I brought wood chips in one time and I ended up with scale in my trees, mm -hmm. a little insect. So it, it, permaculture is about planning and thinking things through. And if you don't do that, um, you can have some really serious serious repercussions. Um, you know, you can bring in a new cow or a bull or something and, and, uh, and end up with a disease in your livestock that wipes you out. So, yeah. Yeah. So it's, 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 yeah, it's not a one-size-fits-all thing. It's not as simple as just throwing a bunch of animals and plants together in the same, you know, acre and, and expecting magic. You really got a trial. You got a lot of years of trial and denial or trial and error with that stuff to figure yeah. out what works yeah, for you. Yep, and, and every place is different and every farm is different and every person on a farm is different. Mm. So you can't, you can't take what works for me and instantaneously plop it onto somebody else. And yeah. You have to find out what what their strengths and weaknesses are, what they like to do, what they don't like to do, um, what they can do, and what they can't do. I mean, I've I found out that I can I can be a vet. I've stitched up critters and I've castrated critters, <laughs> done all kinds of things that I would have never guessed that I'd end up doing strictly because trying to pay a veterinarian to do all those things. Um, I'm, I'm working with very narrow margins, and I wouldn't be able to stay on this farm if I had to call the vet for everything that had to happen. So if I have to pull a calf or a, a lamb or, you know, deal with a prolapsed uterus or whatever, I think if I had a prolapsed cow, I would probably uh, would probably call the vet. But sheep, I can take care of. Um, <laughs> you know, I can pull piglets. <laughs> I, yeah, you just you, you learn to do things that you never dreamed that you ever be able to do um, out of that sense of necessity but that doesn't mean that the next person down the road will will do that or want to do that or or be capable of doing it and so it's just each person needs to figure out what works for them and 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 enjoy enjoy what they love to do yeah yeah so one of the job perks of of becoming a permaculture farmer sounds like being a, a swiss army knife of farming you know, you, you turn into that. <laughs> it, it helps. It certainly helps. Yeah. Very cool. You know, when you're uh, introducing anything new to the farm, you know, do you have like, how do you do, how do you uh, filter out, you know, something bad before it comes in? Like, you know, you said you brought in some mulch that gave your trees scale, you know, how could you prevent that? I mean, is there really no way to prevent it? You just kind of do try it and see what happens or... You know, do you just kind of use experience? I've, I've closed my system down. I mean, pretty much. I have a wood chipper now. I okay. don't bring in wood chips. I make my own. Um, so, yeah, it, it's, it's elimination. You know, it's how can I eliminate things and still have them. And, and you know, you just have to work with what your, what your system is capable of dealing with. I have plenty of trees that go down that, that we can chip up. And so... 
getting a getting a wood chipper was a was a much better deal than to continue to try to bring in something that I found caused some problems. Um, same with livestock, you know, you you have to have them checked and check for the diseases that they that they can check for, and then quarantine them for a period of time, you know, at least a month before you introduce them into your herd, mm. so that you've you've done all that that you can, and that doesn't give you a guarantee, but it gives you a better chance of of avoiding, avoiding those kinds of issues. Sure, sure. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And and the no- other benefit of that is you basically have a grocery store at your house, man. Like you guys got everything, you know. Yes, I, 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 I I don't know anybody else where I could literally go eat at dinner at their house and pretty much everything is from like a hundred yards away. You know that that's I love coming to dinner, uh, coming over to your house for dinner, um, for obvious reasons. Yeah. But yeah. Um, so it's, there, there's some benefits there. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It, it, it is. It's, you know, uh, we were eating tenderloin for dinner the other night. And I'm like, ah, well, the customers didn't buy it, so we're going to have to eat it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> you know, it's, it's a rough life, but somebody's got to do it. Yeah. Uh, yeah, it, it really is. It, it really is amazing what what you can grow yourself. We've gotten so wrapped up in the, in the grocery store system mm-hmm. um, that even most farming families don't produce their own food. They, they sell all their livestock. They sell everything off the farm. And, and they may keep a beef um, to, to butcher and put in the freezer, but they really aren't um, living off of their land in a way that they could. And, you know, I'm, I'm the first one to, to acknowledge that not everybody wants to, to do all these things and wants to be a part of that many operations and keep track of everything. Um, and so it's not, it's not right for everyone. But, of course. But you can make it work, and if, if it is, it is amazing what you can, what you can produce and, you know, have, have all your meat provided for you. You can put up your vegetables and, and root cellar your, your other things and, and you know, raise some wheat and grind your flour and make your bread. I mean, who mm-hmm. red hen? It, it all works if you, if you uh, are, are game enough to go for it. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. Um, what do you, uh, do you have an example of something, you know, some really cool um, product that's arose from doing the permaculture. Like I remember one time I was over for dinner at your house and you guys had the most delicious oyster mushrooms I've ever tasted. And I don't even think I'd had real oyster mushrooms before, but they were spectacular and they were from like right outside the door. You know, is there something like that that was like, oh, cool? Like because of this diversity, we got this bonus product coming out or bonus food. Is there uh, an example you can think of? Well, that's a great example. I mean, we we used to, to, you know, I dug up a stump and threw it away when my kids were little, little because it was growing mushrooms on it. And I was like, I don't know what those are. We better get that out of here before the kids get sick. <laughs> well, it was oyster mushrooms, and we <laughs> threw them all away and dug up the stump. Um, I now, I now, you know, cut my stumps high and leave them there, and we grow mushrooms on them. And um, so, yeah, sorting out and learning, uh, learning, learning, learning. Um, I love learning. It, it, it's, it brings so much, so much new and, and interesting things too. But you know, I've learned about where to put my my orchards, and I've I've put in orchards. So it used to be my grandma's yard was all full of of, uh, of cottonwood trees 
and elm trees, and gradually we're replacing those as they're getting old and losing, you know, their life expectancy is dwindling, and we're chopping them off as stumps and growing mushrooms on them. Um, but I'm replacing those trees with apple trees and pear trees and peach trees, and, you know, my dad's got a peach tree in his hoop house. I'm trying a little one up against the house, so we'll see if, if it'll survive um, in a sheltered microclimate. Um, mm. But but apricots and... and um, plums and all that and so putting a diversity of of fruits now on the place which there was a few apple trees here that were from way back but you know we'll have tons of variety of fruit as well and so just finding out the things that are possible um, is is really rewarding it's exciting to hear about too. It's like every time I come over, there's something new going on, and it's you know never a dull moment at your house. That's for sure. <laughs> that's so, true. That's um, true. so uh, your mission on your your website is to provide better than organic food to your local community, and uh, I, you and I have talked about this subject a lot. It's very loaded for sure, um, but. What uh, what exactly does that mean to you? Better than organic, um, you know. It's, it's so I looked into becoming organic, um, certified organic, and I got the packet and I looked through all the paperwork and I looked through the requirements and what you're going to have to do and what the rules are. And in the end, I decided that trying to trying to do all that. Um, was was another layer of, of, of bureaucracy and paperwork that I already felt like I had too much of. Mm-hmm. So I didn't want to go that route. And looking at the at the regulations that are in place for what you can do, what you can't do, how you have to raise your animals, how you shouldn't raise your animals, what you can spray on things, what you can't spray on things. Sorting through all that, I realized that the way I raise my animals far exceeds the requirements that the organic standard has. Mm-hmm. So the amount of time that cows have to be on pasture, 120 days for the year, the rest of the time they can be in a barn. Well, that's not fair. That's not organic. That's not the way a cow is supposed to live. They're not supposed to live in a barn for, for the rest of the year. And so I don't have my cows in a barn. They have shelter they can get to, but they've got, um, they're on pasture 365 days a year. The chickens, an organic chicken, they give a broiler, which is the meat birds, one foot square space. That's all you have to provide each chicken is in a space of one foot. Now they have them in open bins, so their one foot is, crowded up against the guy next to him who's got his one foot. Mm-hmm. But it's just one foot. So you cram, you know, so many chickens into a big old barn, they're still all crammed together. Yep. My chickens are out on pasture. You know, they don't have a fence around them. They don't have a pen around them of any kind. Um, and I put a guard dog out with them, and the guard dog looks after the chickens, and the chickens follow the cows, and around we go in our merry way and so 
to me, better than organic is just a distinction that I make that says that I'm doing what they say we have to do, but more so. Right. In, and happy animals. Yeah, yeah. I think that should be the standard is just happy animals, happy plants. You know, yep. that's it. Um, yeah. I wish Bob Ross was in charge of making the standards for food. That'd be great. <laughs> yeah. We, but, uh, yeah, I, I totally agree. I think it's a super important topic to talk about with this, the whole farm to table movement, because, you know, everybody sort of thinks organic is the gold sand standard. I see it all the time in my work. You know, everybody asks, is this organic and whatnot? And, and I do sell some organic produce, but I'm never very excited about it because it's usually, you know, little better than non-organic. It's not, it's not all that special flavor wise or anything. And it's still, you know, the tomatoes are still picked and they're, when they're green. And by the time we get them, it's still not very, they're not very pretty. And, um, so I think it's a really important topic. I always tell people when they ask that question is, uh, um, yeah, we, the farms we work with are doing things above and beyond what the organic standard is. You know, I, we, we talked with a, um, apple farmer up in Montana this fall. We started selling their apples and, and, uh, her name's Bonnie and she's amazing. She's a lot like you and, um, she doesn't like the organic standard because there's certain things that are allowed that she would never do, you know, that there's yeah. certain sprays that are allowed on the, the standard that she would never spray on her apples. So it's just really weird. I think it's changed since it was originally, um, conceived. I think there's, there's been some, uh, some liberties taken with the actual standard. So it's easier for bigger companies to do it or something. I, I don't know exactly what happened, but um, it just, to yeah, me, you're, you're exactly right. yeah, it doesn't, it doesn't sound like it's holding as much water as it used to. Um, no, and there, and there are lots and lots of people that are actually rebelling against the, the, the fact that they co-opted the word organic and turned it into this, this thing that you have to get licensed and certified to, to use the word organic. And yet you can spray anything you want on it, your chemical, you know, chemicals you can want on your your farms and, and not have to explain anything to anybody. Yeah. Um, no license, no no regulations, you know, you can just contaminate it and, and yet if you want to call it organic you have to you have to go through all these hoops. It should be the other way around. Mm -hmm. Everything should be organic except the guys who spray everything and then they should have to prove, you know, why why their food is safe. And mm -hmm. you're right that the 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 organic that we're getting now is not the original organic that people intended to have. Um, it, I call it conventional organic. Sure. And basically they, they use the same land um, to harvest their organic stuff as they use to harvest their other stuff. They just wait the minimum two years before they plant the crop that they'll harvest on the third year, and, and then they call it organic. They don't have to build the soil. They don't have to build the... the, um, the bacteria back into the soil. They don't have to have um, the organic matter in there. They plant alfalfa for a couple of years, don't spray it for a couple of years, and then they grow a crop and say it's organic. And the nutritional value of that crop is really not any better than the old conventional crop. And they've done studies and they say that. But that's not the organic that people believe to be organic. The, the root organic is grown in healthy soils, and the bacteria are there to 
bring in the nutrients um, back into the plants that they have. Right now we have a system of food that is causing people to be nutrient deficient and obese at the same time, which is a really odd combination. But if you have people that are constantly eating because their body is telling them that they need this nutrient and they're not getting it, and so they keep eating, and then the body says, okay, too much energy, too much fat. i got to put it here. i got to put it there. Now feed me some more because I'm still looking for that micronutrient that I can't get. And so we end up with this this food system that's really, really hurting us. Mm-hmm. And, and the beautiful thing about eating food from a farm like yourself or or um, you know a farm that's that's using more holistic practices is that you don't have to eat as much you know I definitely feel more satiated when I eat dinner at your house or or uh, um, you know e- even eating just grass-fed and finished beef or, or any pastured pork or something like that like you know the stuff you get in the store it's you it may be you know two or three bucks a pound and it's really cheap but and you can have a a giant pork chop on your plate but you need to eat that whole thing to feel full and uh i feel very satiated and full when i'm eating like uh you know whatever a much smaller pork chop or whatever it is when it's from a really really good operation where there's holistic practices involved because there's just you know it's a holistic food it's there's more nutrients um involved in in integrated into it i don't, I don't know yeah. the science it's behind it all dense. nutrient dense yeah. there you go i i'm you know, as you can tell i'm not a scientist <laughs> but uh <laughs> but you know i just it, it, it i don't know what science is behind that right now i think there I, i'd like to see a lot more research to really back that up like i've heard of the the bricks concept which is really interesting about uh sugar density in uh, mm-hmm. you know vegetable production and stuff and i think it applies to lots of other foods as well and that that's really exciting and i, I can't wait to see more research out there about that and you know if and you've I heard would, of anything let me know love to see it. i would love to see and i've been talking to the to the extension university extension up in power occasionally about it but i would love to see them do some really good studies where they take they take soil that is you know that they know has been has been uh, high organic. You know, take some some of Scott Richards from from Shoshone River Farms. Take some of his soil and take it into their greenhouse, and then go out into their test fields and take some of that soil and take it into the greenhouse, and then plant the same seeds and grow the same seeds side by side. And at the end of the growing season, tomatoes or whatever, harvest those fruits, take them to Nebraska to the food lab and have them tested for nutrients. Yeah. And so far, nobody's been game to do this for me. They give me lots of excuses as to why it's it's difficult to do. But um, I just think that we need those kinds of studies that compare the two side by side. When you have healthy soils, what does that do to the product that you're getting? We know that non-healthy soils doesn't create any more nutrient density. But like you say, if you eat healthy food with nutrient density in it, um, you don't need as much. My, my kids used to go to school and all their friends are hungry all the time and they're eating everything. And I send my lunch, you know, in with the kids and they eat their own. And they come home and they're not, you know, banging on the cupboard saying, where's some food? I'm starving when they get home from school because mm-hmm. they had a, a lunch and a breakfast that met their nutritional needs. And 
So it makes a huge difference. When you get what your body needs, it doesn't fit and scream for food all the time. Right, right. And and another thing about the actual, that study, if, if we can do that, if we can make that happen, it's like, you know, people are very skeptical, right? You know, I, I'm skeptical about lots of things, you know, so I'm always asking, like, where's the data? Where's the data? And if you actually have, yep. like, real data where the statistics aren't just, uh, you know, twisted to make a certain agenda look good, um, that's going to, long term, that's going to really influence the whole situation. I think people are going to really understand, like, this is not made up. And actually, I have found, I'll have to send this to you, actually, I found a YouTube video, um, actually there's probably multiple, but there's a guy who bought organic peppers, like certified organic grown in Mexico peppers or whatever, and he grew his own, and he measured the bricks content, and again, I'm not a scientist, so I don't really understand, like, the, the bricks is generally like sugar content or something, um, but yeah, I, you probably know more about it than I do, but it was like four times or something what the certified organic was you know so that that yeah, and, that's and proof right there something i've i've looked at a little bit but i haven't i haven't looked at any of the recent data some of the things about bricks is you know when the plant was harvested you know and it can be time of day um and, and things like that and i i don't know um scientifically how how that has all played out. I know it got a big, you know, uh, boost there for a while, and then then it tapered off a little, and I haven't looked into it again. Mm -hmm. But I do know that if you pick something green and you grow it specifically to be able to withstand the, the abuse of shipping, um, you know, being picked out in a field and banged around and, and picked green and, and shipped off, you know, a week or two weeks till it actually gets sold, or maybe longer, um, it's not gonna. It's not gonna be as good as something you went out and picked in your garden. No. Um, there's just no way that you can pick something green and have it be as good as if you pick it right off of the stem and take it and eat it. There's just there's just no way. And tomatoes are, you know, you mentioned those earlier. That, that they just don't taste the same. Well, they're designed to to be beaten, abused, and not not be damaged by that. Mm -hmm. And uh, you pick a tomato out of your garden that's fully ripe and runs down your face, and you know it just—it's um, just a whole different, whole different thing. And if we, if we can get people growing their own stuff, um, you know, our, our yards should be turned into gardens. Mm -hmm. You know, everybody grew a victory garden back at the at the wartime, and and then we just stopped again. And it shouldn't have stopped. People should have continued to grow their own food, and if we had a had a habit of that, and a society that valued that, um, we'd have a whole lot healthier population. Yeah, yeah, you know, and I think it's it's interesting you bring that up because like when when you have your own garden, obviously you know the difference between that flavor of that tomato versus the grocery store stuff. And I, that concept applies to everything. It's not just tomatoes. Like, that's what's so interesting. Like, the melons that Terry Craft grows over in Warland, I, like, yeah. that was, I, I, first time I tried those was only, like, two years ago. And I'm, I'm 28 now. I was 26 when I had those. And I've never tasted anything like it. And I, I know tons of people around here had never tasted it either because there's a huge following for them now. But, like, 
a vine ripened melon is to die for. I mean, that is, there's no yeah. better dessert in the world, like at least for straight out of the garden. And um, I think that concept applies to all food. It's, it's so much better when you do it that way. So I think it's a lot of it's just like nobody knows what the difference is. So if you don't know what you're missing, it's like hard to, hard to convince. So like doing as many free samples and tastings of this kind of stuff is what, uh, at least what we're trying to do up here is getting, getting the stuff out there and in people's stomachs, you know, that's, uh, yeah, that's no, I think, it. I think you're exactly right with that is that, that people have been so far removed from, from the food mm-hmm. that they just have no idea how, how fabulous it can taste and, and how good it is. Um, you know, to pull a carrot out of the dirt in the garden and eat it dirt and all, and you need those bugs. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, yeah. It, 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 it just has a taste that you, you can't get in a store-bought carrot. And I've, I found the same thing with the meat. You know, yep. I've had people who, who said, you know, oh, well, my dog or my cat won't even eat this meat I'm getting from the grocery store, and, and they'll eat my meat. And, and dogs and cats seem to be more in tune to what's healthy for them than humans are. We'll, we'll eat what's put in front of us a lot of times, and, and they'll stick up their noses. But I've also had people who, could, who couldn't eat meat anymore, literally couldn't. They'd get sick when they would eat it. A friend of ours, uh, daughter, is that way. And she can eat meat. She can eat my meat. You know, she can eat meat that's been raised healthy and doesn't have all that you know, processing and, and, you know, mixed with how many other, you know, animals and, and confinement raised and fed all the hormones and, and, you know, you get away from all that and you just get back down to real meat grown on grass the way animals were supposed to be. I mean, cows were not designed to eat grain. They were designed to eat grass, and uh, if you get them back to that stage, people can eat the food again. It won't make them sick. Mm-hmm. My uh, cousin came up here uh, last week. They were here, and she's like, "Well, I don't, I don't eat very much meat." She says, "I was vegan for from the time I was 13 till I was 21. I, I just chose that as as a kid." And she says, "I have a hard time eating meat now," and she says, "And especially pork and uh, beef." And I'm like, well, you know, that's mostly what I feed people while here. <laughs> so you'll have to be a little careful about what you eat. And she ate everything I put in front of her. And she didn't have any problems. And she's like, oh, well, I'm, I'm just eating more of it. I don't know. Nothing's happening. So, <laughs> you know, it's the, it's the products that we get at the store now that are just not healthy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. You know, and, and that's, it's funny because when I was vegan, uh, I remember going over to your house and I would always just make an exception <laughs> <laughs> just because I knew how good it was. I didn't care. So, um, yeah. So, uh, one, or I guess I got two, two last questions. Um, what's your favorite part of your job? What, what's, or no, that's not even call it a job. What's your, what's your favorite part of your life right now on the farm? Honestly, you know, we haven't talked about the woofing that I do, um, mm. but educating people, you know, sharing sharing what I have had the, the pleasure of being exposed to, letting other people know about it. So woofing is worldwide opportunities on organic farms, and it's a, it's a website that you put your farm on, and people out there can, can look up the farm, 
and they can make arrangements to come and stay on an organic farm. And mm -hmm. they come in all different varieties. I mean, everything from people who raise horses to to, to dogs to, you know, it doesn't matter. They can have a full-blown farm or just a garden or whatever. You can put your farm on there. Mm. And, and people can come to the farm and experience what it's like to be, to be on the farm. And since I didn't buy this farm and my dad and my grandfather put it together so that I would have the, the, the option to be here, um, I feel like I have an obligation to, to contribute, you know, to share, to share what I've, what I've been able to experience with, with other people. Mm -hmm. And so um, I've had, let's see, I've been doing this since 2012. I've had 65 individuals, 46 groups um, from 30 states, um, or 30 um 30 from in the states and from 12 countries, 30 different states and 12 countries. Wow. And, you know, everywhere from Poland, Australia, um, all over the United States. And it's an opportunity for people to come here. And I've had people that wanted to start their own farm, and they've come to experience it and figure it out so they could go do it themselves. And I've also had people who quit eating meat. And they wanted to see how they how meat could be grown in a way that they would be okay with eating. And I've had people that just wanted to, to see what farm life was like. Farm life was like because they've never had an opportunity to be on the farm. Mm -hmm. And it's been it's been just fantastic. Um, I also do tours for school groups, and, and uh, the Weed and Pest came out last year, and just <laughs> allowing people to come to the farm and have experiences and have exposures to things that that they never would and get that education I think is is vital you know it's the most important part of the whole thing to the education it is. if people don't learn about it then we can't we can't get people healthy mm -hmm. we can't get people to, to start growing their own food um, somebody in town who were trying to get the law changed in Thermopolis you can't have chickens in town in Thermopolis mm. and somebody came up to me and says oh well you don't want to have chickens in town you know then they'll cut into your business and I'm like no I want all of the chickens there can be in town everybody needs to raise their own eggs and if they put me out of business fine that's great um, you know I would rather people were eating healthy food yep. and growing their own than to keep me in business I'm, you know, I'm happy to supply the food that, that people can't get themselves. But if they can grow their own, that tickles me pink. So. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. But, yeah, I totally agree with you um, on supporting other people growing their own food. You know, that's a really important mindset, I think, because sometimes from, like, a business standpoint, um, you can sort of not want – competition you know but if you if you think about supporting the whole movement as a whole i think it's always going to come back to you too it's not just about like you know people just buying from you um you know if you can facilitate the whole culture of of growing your own food eating your own food all that stuff it's really good for you in the long run too so um yeah yeah it's good for us as a human race Important than any one individual. Yeah, absolutely. All right. So my last question is, what excites you the most about farm to table in America? 
or the future. Well, I'm sorry, the future of farm to table. <laughs> Minor well, either way, I mean, whether it's now or whether it's in the future, it it, it is becoming a movement. Mm-hmm. And and you know, when when I first started raising a few things and growing a few things, and and it started the farmers market and was bringing veggies in, nobody was able to get those before. And now we're we're doing it. And people are doing it. And I look out and see all the other people who are growing things and are bringing animals. And, and you go to the farmer's markets now, and there's raw milk, and there's meat, and there's cheese, and there's eggs, and there's, you know, produce. And and so the farm is getting on people's tables now in a way that it didn't used to. Um, and... It, it, it really does excite me, and I'm, I'm hoping that we can keep spreading the word, and I know you're working really hard at it, Zach, to, to get that word out there and, uh, and share it with people so that they can, they can understand that, that this is a, um, a better way to be and a healthier way to be, and it's, it's rewarding to, to, to watch your family grow up on healthy food. And so, yeah, I'm, I'm, I'm thrilled with what, what's happening, and I think as long as we continue to to push it and and share um, share what a good thing we've got going here that that will get it on more people's tables and, and they'll they'll be able to to really get back to the, the local food and um, and food straight off the farms instead of you know mm-hmm. from Mexico um, again that's that's why I mostly sell to my local community I mean I could certainly pack everything up and haul it to other towns around me. But my goal is to decrease that footprint so we're not having 1,500-mile food. Right. We're having local food. People call me, oh, do you, do you deliver to Worland? It's like, no. If you tell your local farmers and ranchers in Worland that you want this product, they'll start delivering it for you. Mm-hmm. Um, but you've got to let people know. And so if, if every community can say, hey, farmers, you know, we want your healthy food. Um, they will deliver. Yeah. They will. And, and, you know, people complain about the price. Uh, I guess I have to say my two cents on that. <laughs> you can pay your doctor or you can pay your farmer because the, the value that you will get by having that nutritional food will cost you less in the long run. And you can say, oh, well, I have insurance. Well, that's great. But you also have the physical ailments that you have to suffer through. And if you eat the healthy farm-raised food, your 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 incidence of obesity, diabetes, gastrointestinal issues, um, lactose intolerance, celiacs, all of that goes down if you're eating local, healthy, grown food. Mm-hmm. So they don't have to specifically be organic. It's better if they are. Um, but the closer to home you can eat, the healthier it's going to be. Yep. And, and the price that you pay to buy that food will actually not cost you as much as you think it will because you won't have to buy as much. You know, you can buy the steak and not have to buy as much meat. Everybody can have a portion of that steak instead of having a huge piece of steak or a roast. Yeah, the cost up front may seem more because we can't grow it in a huge, you know, we don't have the, the economy of scale that these big guys can do. 
So we do have to charge a little more because we've got to go it on a small scale. And it costs me more to go buy a semi-load of, of grain than it costs the big industrial guys who have their own farmers who raise their own grain for their own pigs, you know. Mm -hmm. It just costs us more for all those things. But in the end, the portion sizes that you will need to meet your health and nutritional needs will be smaller. Yep. And you won't have to eat as much food. So yep. in the end, you don't pay more. Yep. And people have to realize that. Yep, and and I think uh, I I don't think we'll ever get to the point where the prices are the same as the grocery store or like even within you know whatever like a really close distance. But I think the more people get into this, there's gonna be ways to 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 make it you know a little bit more economical to do this kind of stuff. Like if we had a way, you know, I think you and I have talked about this before. Is if we had a way that for somebody to grow. Um, pork feed and chicken feed within you know spitting distance of all these farms here that would help a lot with the cost right you know i mean yeah actually yep, yeah sure. so like the more for people sure. get interested in this stuff um there, it's possible the prices can come down a, a little bit at least um yeah a little bit the thing to remember though is that americans are used to paying a very small percentage of their annual very income. true in food mm -hmm. and you go look at the rest of the world and they have better quality food than we do and they pay a higher percentage of their annual income to buy that food very true we are used to cheap food because of our corn belt because of the way we are confinement raising everything and so if if we get our our ranches and farmers selling at the same price that grocery stores are they won't be sustainable and so it, it's partially we have to change the mindset. We have a mindset that cheap food is what we deserve to have. Well, if you deserve cheap food, you're also going to get the health benefits or lack thereof that come with that cheap food. You get what you pay for. Cost. Mm -hmm. You get what you pay for. So, yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. You know, you can go buy stuff at Walmart and, you know, six months later you have to buy it again because it broke. Or you can go buy something made by a craftsman in your local community, and it'll be there till your great great grandkids, you know, are sitting in it. Mm -hmm. it it's it's a, it's a value you have to place on things, and uh, and we're used to cheap and disposable, and it doesn't work with our health. No, it doesn't. It doesn't. Um, yeah, and just to give you a report on where things are around Cody at least because I'm pretty involved with you know things happening in Cody mm -hmm. but it just the the interest in farm to table is exploding here um, you know I've only lived here for three years or something or four years now uh, but I'm just hearing right and left that people are interested in this stuff I'm getting calls from restaurants asking for for this food and um, you know it's just a very popular concept and I I don't know if it's because there's there's people moving in here from out of state or whatever, but I, I think it's more than that. It's just uh, the culture is it's changing, um, which is just it, it's so exciting and and it's exciting that it's happening in Thermopolis too. You know, like because we're in Wyoming and Wyoming is is uh, <laughs> you know least populated state in the in the union um, and yeah. one of the hardest places to grow all this stuff too. So it's just really exciting that it's happening here. You know. 
Um, you yeah, know, I so it's, it's, I can't wait. I just can't wait to see what the next five, 10 years are going to look like. It's very, very, very cool. Um, yeah. So, um, so before we, we wrap up, where can we find you, uh, find Becker family stock farm? Man, I didn't even mention your, your stock farm's name <laughs> the whole time. Yeah. My, my dad, my dad named it the Becker family stock farm and that throws people because they want to just call it Becker farms or something. But it's, it's name is specific to, to describe what we do. We're not a farm. We don't grow acres and acres of corn or, or you know, barley or wheat. We put up some hay and maybe occasionally grow a little grain. So we're not a farm the way they are back east, but we're also not a ranch um, where we just raise cattle and, and all that. So we have livestock, which is what the stock part is. Mm. And so it's Becker Family Stock Farm. And it can be located on the web. We've got a, um, a web page, BeckerFamilyStockFarm.com. And you can find us on um, with, with email at, at BeckerFamilyStockFarm at Gmail. Um, and uh, you can give us a call at uh, 307 867 2233. And any of those work. We also have a Becker Family Stock Farm Facebook page, though. So. Um, there's lots of, lots of roots in. Beautiful, beautiful. And, and we'll include all of those in the show notes too, so people can find you. Um, you know, it's weird. I've actually gotten a couple of emails from people looking for you. Uh, they, they sent me like a contact form on our, on our website. <laughs> so I've been trying to send them to your way. It's happened like two or three times. <laughs> so Isn't that funny? Well, yeah. So, well, anyway, thank you so much for taking this much time to talk with us, Sonia, because I know you got a million things going on and, um, you know, it's always a pleasure to talk to you, whether it's podcast or not, you know, so thank you so much. All right. Well, thank you very much, Zach. I appreciate the, the time to, to spread the good word about, about local food. Amen to that, brother. Thank you so much, and thank you for listening.